Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We often hear all about the killers and less about the victim experience, so today we're shifting the general point of view of many true crime stories. We'll learn about five specific encounters from the victims and how they fell into the hands of serial killers and what those experiences were like. Welcome guys to this Patreon-only patrons episode. Thank you so much for tuning in today. As always, I dug around a little bit to get you some stories that I hope are new to you. There are five teens who had deadly encounters with serial killers. Number five, the dark secrets of a Florida junkyard. Hidden behind the sprawling junk and rusting relics in Spring Hill, Florida, a grisly discovery would shock a small community and unveil a sinister predator lurking in their midst. He is nestled among the discarded artifacts of a forgotten era, lay secrets buried for decades, and a family's agonizing search for their missing daughter would finally come to a haunting end. It was April of 1981, and Hernando County Sheriff's investigators had unearthed the remains of four bodies from what local residents eerily referred to as the House of Horrors. The expansive junkyard was the property of Billy Mansfield Jr., a man who would later be identified as a prolific serial killer. Of the four victims discovered, only two were immediately recognized, and so for years, the other two women remained nameless, their stories buried just as deeply as they had been. Among them was Teresa Fillingham, a teenager who had vanished without a trace on May 16th of 1980, just a week shy of her 17th birthday. Her distraught sister had reported her disappearance in Tampa, and for a year the family's hopes of finding her alive slowly dwindled. Over the subsequent decades after being discovered, Teresa's remains would travel from one lab to another, 
as forensic scientists endeavored to extract a viable DNA profile. It wasn't until 2020 that they succeeded. Desperate for a match, they sought the assistance of the University of North Texas, but the search in the national database came up empty. Undeterred, investigators turned to Parabon Nanolabs, their innovative snapshot DNA phenotyping service. With a revolutionary approach, Snapshot used the DNA evidence to make trait predictions for the victim, painting a detailed portrait of Teresa's possible appearance, from her ancestry and eye color to the shape of her face. This new approach allowed investigators to re-energize their search, producing their own leads. And ultimately, it was a DNA sample from Teresa's own sister that confirmed the heart-wrenching truth. Margaret Johns, Teresa's sister, conveyed her mixed feelings of grief and closure. She said, It gives me peace because I know I didn't lose her, that she was taken. But her sorrows were deepened by the knowledge that so many of her family members, both parents and her other sister, had died without knowing Teresa's fate. Mansfield, the monster behind these heinous acts, had a serious history of criminal activities everything from battery and kidnapping to sexual assault. His pattern of violence reached its peak with the rape and strangulation murder of 30-year-old Renee Sailing in December of 1980. This was his fifth victim within five years, and the only one not buried on his property. The publicity surrounding this case would lead an anonymous informant to tip off authorities about more potential victims in Mansfield's junkyard. And so, by March of 81, authorities would discover the remains of three more young women, including Teresa, on those cursed grounds. Mansfield, now 66, sits behind bars, having pleaded guilty to the rape and murders. Denied parole multiple times, it's likely he'll spend the rest of his life in jail. For many, the terrifying tale of the Florida junkyard and the lives stolen by a sadistic killer remains a sobering testament to the persistence of investigators in the ever-evolving world of forensic science. And for one family, it's the story of lost time, sorrow, and the long-awaited resolution in the face of unimaginable tragedy. Number four, the mysterious disappearance of Georgianne Hawkins. On a balmy summer evening in June of 1974, George Ann Hawkins, a vivacious 19-year-old University of Washington student, left a campus party to visit her boyfriend at the Beta Theta Pi fraternity house. Little did she know the 90-foot walk back to her sorority house would be her last. Born in Tacoma, Washington, to Warren and Edie Hawkins, George Ann was known as a spirited young woman or by many her outgoing personality was evident from a young age. Despite her parents' reservations about her moving far for college, her choice at the University of Washington, Seattle, seemed to compromise. It was close enough to home, yet offered the university experience she really wanted. Immersed in her new life, she joined the on-campus sorority, Kappa Alpha Theta. Inspired by events like the Watergate scandal, Georgian dreamt of a career in broadcast journalism. The night of her disappearance started innocently enough. 
After sharing drinks with a sorority sister, she then decided to make a brief stop at her boyfriend's house to grab some notes for her upcoming Spanish finals. The alleyway connecting the two houses was familiar to the young woman, illuminated by street lights and usually bustling with students preparing for their exams. Leaving her boyfriend's house at around 1 a.m., Jan jovially shouted, Adios, as she embarked on that short walk home. Her attire that evening was striking. Navy blue bell-bottom pants, a patriotic red, white, and blue top, and open-toed sandals. She also carried a tan leather purse filled with essentials, her school ID, wallet, perfume, and those crucial Spanish notes. But hours passed and there was no sign of George Ann back at home. She didn't have a key to the house, and so her roommate, who was used to the sound of pebbles at the window, George Ann's signal to be let in, grew anxious. By dawn, her disappearance was now becoming an urgent matter, prompting an immediate police response. Given the unsettling pattern of young brunette women going missing in Washington that year, authorities feared the worst. Media attention was swift, thanks to the father of one of George Ann's sorority sisters, who was a newsman. Her story spread like wildfire, with newspapers and TV broadcasts giving it significant coverage. However, despite the urgency and heightened media attention, no leads emerged. Police explored several theories. Given the alley's familiarity and frequent use by students, could someone have exploited George Ann's compromised vision and overheard personal details? See, she usually wore glasses or contacts, but that night she had neither. She had worn contacts all day and as a result needed to take them out. And putting the glasses on after made things even more blurry, so she just skipped them. Police thought maybe the perpetrator had been lurking and overheard her name being called out. And later when she was alone, perhaps they called her over and unable to see properly, she went towards them and was then attacked. But with no evidence or witnesses, these were just theories, and they remain mere speculations. The investigation took a chilling turn, though, in 1989, when notorious serial killer Ted Bundy made a shocking confession. Using a ruse, Bundy admitted to having approached George Ann, feigning injury and asking for help with his briefcase. Moved by compassion, the girl obliged. As she was placing the item into his car, Bundy smashed her over the head with a crowbar and pushed her inside. While driving, she woke up but was incoherently talking about her Spanish test and seemed to believe he was a tutor there to help her. He knocked her out again and took her to a secluded wooded area near Lake Sammamish, where he strangled her to death with a piece of rope. After, he claims to have decapitated her, only to return to the area three days later to bury it separately. Bundy, in total, has 20 confirmed victims and confessed over 30. He's suspected of having 36-plus kills, and he was executed on January 24, 1989, at the age of 42. Number three, the unsolved case of Little Miss Nobody. New Mexico has seen its fair share of mysteries, but few are as haunting as the disappearance of four-year-old Sharon Galagos. 
in the town of Alamogorda on July 21st of 1960. A real-life urban legend-esque horror unfolded and may have been the work of a serial killer. On that fateful day, little Sharon was outside her grandmother's house playing with two of her friends. What seemed like an innocent day quickly turned into every parent's worst nightmare. A dark green sedan resembling a 1951 or 52 Plymouth or Dodge pulled up outside the house. Its passengers were mysterious. A white male driver, a female companion, and eerily two other children. A boy and a girl. And the boy having a noticeable face full of freckles. The woman, in a chillingly premeditated move, tried to lure Sharon into the car with the enticing promises of candy and new clothes. Young Sharon, perhaps sensing danger or simply showing the natural reluctance many children have with strangers, declined. Not to be denied, the female swiftly got out of the car, grabbed Sharon by the elbow, and yanked her into the car before they sped off. Just like that, as quickly as they had appeared, they were gone, leaving behind the other two traumatized children in a neighborhood in shock. Lieutenant Tom Boltz recounted that prior to the abduction, there had appeared to have been some concerns about a couple in a dark green sedan that may have been stalking the little girl. A woman had been inquiring about Sharon and her mother at church and even at a neighbor's house mere days before the horrifying incident. Sharon herself, as told by her mother, was acting nervous in the days leading up to the kidnapping. She was more clingy than usual and asked to be picked up whenever the same green car was around. So, more than likely, they were scoping out the child, waiting for the right opportunity to strike. Despite the Alamo Gordo police's efforts to set up roadblocks, Sharon and her abductors remained at large the little girl's whereabouts were unknown. Then ten days later, and 500 miles away, near Highway 93 in Yavapai County, Arizona, a grim discovery was made by someone searching for rocks. It was the partially buried body of a young child. The remains had decayed badly under the hot sun and no cause of death could be made. The authorities from Alamogordo got in touch with Yavapak County, but were told the remains couldn't belong to four-year-old Sharon because these were of a child that was at least seven years old. No one ever figured out who that body belonged to, and so her story became a cold case, known as Little Miss Nobody. Years went by, and in 2015, with DNA advancements, they extracted some from the exhumed body of the cold case but didn't find a match. However, as time progressed, so did science. And only recently were authorities finally able to match the DNA to living relatives, affirming the worst fears of the Galagos family. The body in Arizona, thought to be a seven-year-old, had all this time belonged to Sharon. Yet, as many answers as the DNA brought, countless questions still remain. Who were this man and woman roaming New Mexico with children in tow? What events transpired in those 10 days Sharon was missing? Perhaps most chillingly is the freckle-faced boy and other little girl in the car. Potentially other victims or are they still alive out there somewhere? 
Well, Galagos case has been revived. The search for her kidnappers and murderers continues. As Sheriff David Rhodes poignantly stated, he hopes never to hear the moniker, but will miss nobody again. Number two, the Halloween nightmare. It was Halloween night in 1979 in the streets of Sunland, a suburb of Los Angeles, was filled with joyous trick-or-treaters. Over 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford, the evening would take a real-life horrifying turn. Ledford, after enjoying a Halloween party, was hitchhiking home when she found herself outside a gas station hoping for a ride. Van approached, and as luck would have it, at least that's what she thought, recognized one of the men inside. Lawrence Bitteker was a familiar face, a patron of the restaurant where she worked part-time as a waitress. Accompanied by his friend Roy Norris, they offered Ledford a lift, and she gladly accepted. It was a different time back in the 70s, when lots of people hitchhiked without fear. But her relief of finding a ride was short-lived. Norris offered her some weed, which she declined. The ride then took a sinister turn when the van moved to a secluded location. Ledford found herself bound and gagged by construction tape with a knife threateningly held by Norris. For over an hour, the van wandered aimlessly. But for Ledford, each second was filled with terror. Norris drove as Bitteker unleashed a barrage of abuse upon the helpless teenager. Bitteker seemed to take perverse joy in her fear, slapping her and then mocking her cries. He would force her to scream and then yelled at her to scream even louder. Roy Norris, years later, would chillingly recall the sound of those screams. He likened them to the screams one hears in horror movies, but with one crucial difference, of course. These were real. This wasn't fiction or over-the-top torture porn. This was a young girl's agony, an agony that horrifyingly they chose to record. Switching roles, it was Norris's turn to torment Ledford. He continued the onslaught using a sledgehammer to inflict unspeakable pain. Every strike, every cry, every plea was captured on that haunting tape. A grim testament to the inhumanity of the perpetrators. Hours felt like an eternity for Shirley. And her suffering reached a tragic end when Norris, using a coat hanger, tightened with pliers, strangled her. With cold detachment, Bitteker decided to discard her body on a random front lawn to gauge media reaction. The following morning, a jogger stumbled upon the heartbreaking scene. The autopsy painted a grim picture of her final moments, highlighting the brutal trauma inflicted upon her. To further add to the heinousness of their crimes, Bitteker would later downplay the tape's content, suggesting it was just evidence of a threesome. In total, these two men went on to kill five-plus victims. Number one, the forgotten victim of Florida's mangroves. In sun-soaked Florida, Many mysteries lurk beneath the canopy of palm trees and the reflections of waterways. Some of these mysteries, untouched for decades, occasionally resurface. The case of Susan Poole is one of them. 
On a damp morning in 1974, a gruesome discovery shook the community of Palm Beach County. The skeletal remains of a young girl were found tied to a mangrove tree off the coastal A1A highway. Her identity was unknown and her story untold. That was until recent advances in DNA technology finally provided answers. For a long time, Susan Poole had been just another name in the ledger of missing persons. Reported missing in December of 1972, she was a resident of a Broward County trailer park, living a seemingly ordinary life with her parents and several brothers. However, one day, she just disappeared, leaving behind only her clothes, handbag, and personal belongings at a friend's apartment. The ensuing search was exhaustive, but turned up nothing. As years went by, Susan's fate remained a haunting enigma until the revelation by Detective Bill Springer of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. A lead that had seemed impossible at first had come to fruition when forensic experts at Othram Incorporated matched the DNA of the skeletal remains to Susan in 2022. Well, they had finally figured out two mysteries, who the girl tied to the mangrove tree was and where Susan went. The area's darker history then began to unravel. A shadowy figure from the past, Gerard Schaefer, was unveiled as the prime suspect. Schaefer wasn't just anyone. He had worn the uniform of both the Wilton Manors Police and as a sheriff's deputy in nearby Martin County. Beneath this facade of authority, however, lived a sinister serial killer. He was arrested in 1973 for the heinous act of kidnapping two young girls and subsequently tying them to trees. This chilling M.O. matched Susan's fate, and the fact that Schaefer resided in the same vicinity as Poole made him an unmistakable suspect. However, justice in its traditional form eluded Schaefer. Before the full extent of his potential crimes could be uncovered, he met a grisly end at the hands of another inmate in Florida State Prison during the 1990s. Well, Schaefer's demise brought an end to his reign of terror. For Susan's family, the recent revelations brought mixed feelings. A cocktail of relief, grief, and closure. As Detective Springer put it, the family was happy to know what happened. It's been a long time waiting to see what happened to their sister. The case may never be completely closed, as many questions still remain, but for now the Palm Beach County community can find some solace in the fact that one of its long-standing mysteries has been solved. So there were five teens who had deadly encounters with serial killers. It was a bit of a heavier one, and there was a lot to unpack there, so I hope it wasn't too much for you guys. Thank you so much for all the continued support, we really appreciate it. Stay safe out there. I'll see you soon.